passage this morning we're primarily going to be looking at comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, typically an Advent slash Christmas passage, but man, we're in August, we might as well have something to look forward to and hear from this beautiful Gospel passage on the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a, to the city to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary and he came to her and said greetings o favored one the lord is with you but <laughs> she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be and the angel said to her Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed from her this ends the reading of God's holy word I can't believe that said Alice can't you said the queen in a pitying tone try again draw a long breath and shut your eyes Alice laughed there's no use trying she said one can't believe impossible things I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Maybe you recognize that from Alice in Wonderland. And as much as any of the miracles in the Bible, the virgin birth perhaps more than any has drawn this kind of response. I can't believe it, especially in the 20th century. It seems just incredible to believe. And maybe maybe this is because there's a, a miraculous conception, but a very ordinary birth, right? One theologian from my home state of Texas noted that when he was growing up in the mid-20th century, um, a big argument among the folks in his Methodist church, and this was in the 50s and 60s, was whether the virgin birth was real or not. For him, though, the bigger question was not was it real or not, but what difference does it make? Why is it so important that the virgin birth even happened in the first place? Does God have a purpose behind it? I think for um, a lot of us, for reasons of ease and consistency when it comes to something like the virgin birth, which we confess when we recite the Apostles' Creed, We think, well, look, I already believe a bunch of stuff, and I believe from the heart a bunch of stuff that already seems kind of wild. What's one more thing to confess, even if I don't understand why? 
But the virgin birth is more than just, as Alice said, one more difficult thing or incredible thing to believe. For our lives as Christians and as followers of Jesus, it functions in a concrete way for discipleship and to fuel our worship. And so this morning, I want us to briefly unfold the reasons for this. Um, and we're going to be asking as we do this, and because this is a holy moment, when we gather together, we're going to be asking that same Holy Spirit who we see working in this gospel narrative to continue the work that He does in us and through us, even as we hear His Word. So let's think about the virgin birth, and we're going to break it down by the two parts of the creed that we're looking at this morning, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It just means that the forming of Jesus in the womb was not ordinary, but it was caused by the Holy Spirit. In, in particular, the, the creation of Jesus' human body was done in an extraordinary way by the Holy Spirit. Now, right off the bat, I think it's worth noting that the Holy Spirit working in the, womb of, in the womb of Mary is not about some kind of aversion to sex that is just baked in to Christianity. God is not doing an end around on something that is inherently sinful or embarrassing. In fact, if you look, and we'll, we'll actually do a flyby of some passages in Scripture, there's a lot about sex and in particular about births that happen throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and even in the New Testament. But unfortunately, there's a strong current of this kind of discomfort or this, this teaching about an aversion to sex um, in Christianity. And a lot of it comes actually from someone that we typically celebrate. We would put his picture on a t-shirt, St. Augustine. In fact, in, in, in the course of one discussion about the freedom of the will... He notes this, and I'm going to quote, The action of a married couple who intend to beget a child is not evil. In other words, the desire to have children is good. But, he, and then he goes to pivot. That's always what happens when you have a but there. The action is not performed without evil. In other words, it's good to want kids, but what you've got to do to get kids, not good. All right, that's Augustine. Elsewhere, he writes that all sex is tainted by the passion of lust, even for married people. And he wrote a whole little treatise on this called On Marriage. But without piling on Augustine too much, I just want to say this. That was Augustine's opinion, due in large part to his own backstory, his own struggles. And you can read about him. He, uh, good thing about Augustine, he, if he thought something, he wrote it down. And uh, there's a, a wonderful book that you should read. It's called Confessions, and you hear and see some of his own struggles and his backstories. That was Augustine's opinion. But that is not God's opinion, and that is not God's action. Now, for sure, following Christ means that what you do with your body and with who and even how matters to God. And it's part of discipleship. Jesus talks about it. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about it. The Apostle Peter talks about it. But sex is not inherently sinful. Instead, what's happening here when we confess uh, the virgin birth, this unique involvement of the Holy Spirit in forming the human body of Jesus signals a significant and new work by God in history. Like whenever you see the Holy Spirit in Scripture, 
um, and I hope this doesn't ruin it for you, but just think of like a flare gun going off. There is darkness, and what happens when a flare, go- flare gun goes off? Boom! Light. It illumines. There's something happening. There's new light being shed. And in this case, that is exactly what's going on. The Holy Spirit is announced. It's like a signal, a flare gun going off, and it's saying what? Salvation is found here. God is at work here in a special, historical, redemptive way. That's always what the Holy Spirit is about. Now let's think about this. Remember at creation in Genesis 1, it was who that was hovering over the waters of creation. It was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit took what was formless and empty and made from that our world, our beautiful world that we're actually getting to sit out in the midst of this morning. As Psalm 104 says, commenting on this passage, When you, God, send forth your Spirit, all things are created and you renew the face of the ground. Creation occurs when the Spirit broods, hovers over the formless abyss and brings life out of nothing, out of emptiness. And now that same Spirit, in a new work of creation, as mighty as when the cosmos was formed, fills the void of Mary's womb and forms a new Adam, Jesus, to bring salvation to the world by this miracle. And the same Holy Spirit who miraculously creates the human body of this new Adam, Jesus, also flashes out from Jesus throughout the Gospels. You think about Jesus' own ministry. Matthew chapter 3, what happens? Jesus is really fully and finally equipped for ministry once He has is baptized and then the Holy Spirit, it says, descends on Him like a a dove. What else happens? The Holy Spirit is also working powerfully whenever Jesus in Matthew 9 heals a woman with a flow of blood when she just simply touches Him, touches the hem of His robe. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is just this open outlet and electricity is just shooting out so much so that when this woman grabs to touch him, she doesn't get the life shocked out of her, but shocked back into her. So great is his power. The same Holy Spirit power works in actually bringing Jesus back to life, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, and then empties the tomb. And then as it gets closer to what we are doing here, and to us, Acts chapter 2, this Pentecostal pouring out of the Holy Spirit transforms what at that point was just kind of a lifeless rabble of frightened followers of Jesus into what? Fearless witnesses of the resurrection. So you see, Jesus is the bearer of the Holy Spirit and the sender of the Holy Spirit. And in Him, the Spirit creates a new beginning for the whole human race. And that's what the church proclaims in this concise and in, in, in the astonishing words of the catechism that we, or the confession that we read in, in the Apostles' Creed when we say we believe in the Holy Spirit. And here's the so what of all this. The same Holy Spirit that was at work informing the humanity of Jesus in the womb now is at work forming in you Christ's God-likeness. Think of that. Formed the humanity of Jesus and now He's 
crafting, kneading into you godliness. The Spirit of God that formed Jesus in the womb and equipped Him for ministry on earth now works actively in all of our lives. You see, it's fascinating to me that we get hung up on the miracle of Jesus' birth, but we should be stunned with humility and gratitude now at the Spirit's work in you. You share in that same miraculous power and activity and force from God that is the Holy Spirit. And just as extraordinary, just as extraordinary as Jesus' unusual conception is the extraordinary things that God does by the Spirit in your midst. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's not theologically right, but there's a sense in which it takes more work by the Spirit to make us holy than it did to form Jesus in the womb. And yet we're just we're slack-jawed. And, and glassy-eyed thinking about the virgin birth, but what He's doing in our midst is even greater. Because why? This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What else does Paul say? But by the Spirit, what do you do? You put to death the deeds of the body and live. Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, new birth causes you to do what is extraordinary and not natural or with the grain of this fallen world. Things like love your enemy. Things like tell the truth. Things like pray. Things like forgiving one another. That's real Holy Spirit miracle work. So I wonder this morning, here's the question I'm trying to hook you with as you think about the significance of the virgin birth for your life. If what you and I need to do this morning as a response to God's work in the virgin birth is to stop quenching the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because we know He's powerful, but somehow, some way, in God's mysterious economy, even those of us who are Christians and filled with the Spirit can at times quench His work, His miraculous work of doing things like loving enemies, telling the truth, praying, and forgiving others. So maybe our response needs to be something like, can y'all hear me? It just occurred to me that maybe I've been rocking around. All right, I got a thumbs up there. That maybe we need to forgive someone in our life by the work of the Spirit. That person that you hold a grudge against, someone that you, you nurse a grudge against, I was thinking this morning as I was driving over how uh, sometimes these grudges that we nurse, this inability to forgive someone is not because what they have done to us is so bad. It's because we take so much delight in just holding on to that grudge that it's, it's like for me going at 1130 or 12 at night and going to my freezer and opening up the freezer and getting a little bit of Tillamook ice cream and having one, three, five scoops, whatever it is, right? And it just feels so good. And nursing that grudge, for some of you, just feels good. You just don't want to let go of it. Somehow it makes these endorphins in your brain fire. But it does have collateral effect, too. Because just like Tillamook keeps me about 20 pounds too heavy, even far worse, your inability to forgive rots your soul. 
it, it includes your ability to see the light and the beauty of the forgiveness that you have in the first place from Christ. Just kind of crushes you. Or maybe you need to start telling the truth and just this is going to be a weird application but and I'm not thinking of anyone here at all so I don't think you know I've I've got you in my sights but the garbage that Christians write on Facebook when they're talking especially about politics so and so is a Republican so and so is a Democrat so and so doesn't vote or they're independent or whether they're letting everything go so much of what I've read from Christians is just wicked it's a misrepresentation of a brother and sister in Christ and it's just not true and we are privileged to be able to be truth tellers and maybe and this is like unto it we need to quit quenching the spirit and begin and this takes Holy Spirit power to love our enemies now maybe the first start is just trying not to make enemies but if you have them pray for them I have to remind myself of this whenever I kind of want to go to the Tillamook ice cream freezer and just nurse a grudge against someone that I consider an enemy. Pat, quit being a coward. Quit being a chicken-hearted about this. Instead, choose by an act of faith in response to what God has done to love that person. Live by faith. Do what is actually only possible by the Spirit. Miraculously even. And love your enemy. Jesus is singularly unique in this teaching. And the only reason that we're able to do it is because he empowers us to do it. Conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's the first one. Here's the second one. It's a little bit shorter. Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary is this, a sign and a witness to the graciousness of grace for you and for all of his people. Now here's where we're going to do the 30,000 you know, foot view of, of, of Scripture. Remember God's power and promise, how it's fulfilled through births throughout um, biblical history. Many of the miraculous, going to Genesis, right? Probably the most memorable one is uh, Sarah in her old age gives birth to Isaac. You remember why Isaac is named Isaac? It means laughter. She just kind of like, Pfft, Give me a break. You're going to, me, I'm old. I'm going to have a baby. Yes, she did have a baby. Then later on, now Moses' birth is not miraculous, but him even surviving his birth is miraculous. And before he's a savior, he's actually miraculously saved by God in the book of Exodus. And you think about the judges. Samson's birth is, uh, his mother is approached by an angel who declares that he's going to be born and have special significance and be a deliverer of God's people. And then Hannah in the book of Samuel, her own, she prays and prays and longs for a son. And then eventually God answers her prayer and her son goes on to be a great um, prophet in Israel. And then last and surely not least, maybe the greatest miraculous birth is Israel itself. Reborn out of Babylon. Isaiah 54 says this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Israel was a miracle baby. 
And so it's not hard to see why pregnancy and childbirth played such an important role in the history of God's covenant with Israel. God's overarching plan is to bring blessing to who? The world, the, all the nations, through a descendant of Abraham. So if ever the Hebrew women ceased to bear children, the promise of God would fail. By the way, and this is interesting, um, Israel, and again, I don't want to conflate modern Israel with ancient Israel, but the Jewish people now um, are the only modern industrial nation that does not have a collapsing birth rate. And part of the reason why is because they're still holding on to these promises that God works through these births of their children. And for us, the confession that Jesus is born of a virgin isn't just this theological eccentricity. It's not some random miracle story. It's not God doing wheelies and showing off. Instead, it's a reminder that our faith has deep roots in Israel's history, Israel's scriptures, God's past dealing in history. The coming of the Savior wasn't a new thing. It was the culmination of this great story of God's loving faithfulness to the people of Israel and ultimately to the world. Gentiles like many of us. Theologian Ben Meyer says the meaning of history is not power. It's not empire. It's not even who wins elections. But the promise and trust is what sews up and gives meaning to history. The secret of history is revealed when a woman, insignificant to the eyes of the world, responds in joy, and he's speaking of Mary, to God's promise and bears that promise into the world in her own body. Well, so what? Why does that make a difference? What was God showing us by the virgin birth that He has also taught us elsewhere? Put it another way, why is, given this history of Israel, why is the birth of Jesus unique or stand out in distinction from all those? The birth from the Virgin Mary carries with it this is going to move us and lead us to a culmination here. The birth from the Virgin Mary carries with it a real disqualification of human powers being able to produce Jesus, to produce a Savior. Christ Jesus, let me put it this way, is not in any sense, even in a cooperative sense, a product of human activity. The initiative of salvation is entirely in God's hands. You see, the virgin birth displays by the very nature of Jesus' conception that from first until last, salvation is by grace alone. Salvation for humanity among men and women and within them is a salvation grounded on the immediate and the sovereign act of God alone, not as a partnership between God and man where we give a little bit, he gives a little bit, I'll meet you halfway, he meets us halfway. It is not a participation adventure. Rather, it is God moving toward us from first until last. Put it another way, your life is not your own. You are not self-made spiritually. God has saved you. It took God's activity, as miraculous as the virgin birth, to awake you, to get you in these seats on the ground right here this morning. Grace is gracious. And that means freedom and joy and security because it comes from God. Let me end with this. For by grace 
you have been saved through faith in this, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works or cooperation or meeting God halfway or being a pretty good person so that no one may boast. Your salvation is locked in tight from first to last because it is God who has initiated and moved towards you. And He did this throughout Israel's history, but then especially and radically in Jesus, beginning with the very nature of His birth. It is all of grace. Let's pray.